0: Hello, and welcome to Supply Chain Next. I'm your host, Richard Donaldson. Join me as we explore the ongoing evolution of supply chain, from the challenges practitioners face every day, to the ongoing digital transformation of the entire value network. And welcome to the next episode of Supply Chain Next. Uh, This is Richard Donaldson, and I am super thrilled today to have on as a guest, uh, Gabriel Plotkin. Uh, Hey, Gabe, how you doing?
1: I'm good, how are you, Richard?
0: doing really good I know we're gonna get into uh, uh, some, some of the things you're doing in trade water and carbon and uh, certainly refrigerant and things like that um, but like with all these episodes and kind of getting right into it um, we'd love to hear a little bit about you and your journey and you've got a really interesting background uh, as I was looking I think you and I share a little bit of commonality with the Midwest I know you're in Chicago but it looks like you were sort of in around Wisconsin but then um, not, you know, much to people's surprise if they met you today, uh, you were engaged in law and specifically some criminal law stuff. So maybe just tell a little bit about yourself here, Gabe.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that, thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. But um, yeah, I started out as a lawyer. That was my original um, calling in life, actually, right out of undergrad Um had a strong interest in working with um, kids um, and found myself working with runaway and homeless teens uh, oh in God. Madison. I grew up in Milwaukee and uh, was back in, in Wisconsin and in Madison helping doing crisis intervention services for, for these youth who found themselves in, in trouble and learned and felt like one of the best ways that I could help them out was to get involved in law. Um, yeah. I found so many of these kids who were trying to find a safe spot um, I really ended up in, in trouble with the juvenile justice system, and and so I was inspired to to help them, and, and and so I went on to law school.
0: Oh gosh! Um, and in law school, you, so you, but you did parlayed into and you spent a good chunk of time in the you know doing what what I'm looking at in the in the background in criminal defense in particular. So maybe we can expand. on Yeah, that
1: absolutely, bit. for yeah. sure. So yeah, went to law school while there, sort of thinking about these issues around youth. a class on race and justice and 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 criminal law was inspired to do that and and ended up in chicago as a public defender federal court Mm -hmm. representing indigent uh clients who uh were facing the full force of federal law and uh Mm -hmm. was sort of a natural progression from some of the work i was doing with youth um found it fascinating really interesting um and really really hard um and uh, from there, tried to make a transition within the law to, uh, to just enjoy the skills of being a litigator, being in the courtroom, which I had enjoyed at the time, and do something a little bit different. Found myself at a firm, um, doing some interesting work, great little firm, um, but really also didn't kind of scratch that itch that I needed, wasn't entirely fulfilling. And um, after about 12, 13 years, I said, you know, there's, there's gotta be something else out there. Something that I really feel passionate about and can get behind. Um, and that's what led me to do uh, climate change work.
0: Got it. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to hold that one there. Cause it's a good segue. Cause I'm not going to, uh-huh. I'm not going to get off this. I'm, I'm kind of fascinated a little bit, like, <laughs> sure. um, especially about the background of the law and kids in particular, because this seems to be one of those topics um, that, everyone kind of knows but doesn't really have the spotlight even to this day shined on it and how much you know uh, troubled youth there are not only in the United States but globally I mean you were just dealing I'm assuming here in the u.s mostly um, but you know it's it's a I mean I know this is your former life but Maybe you can just talk to a little bit, because, I mean, again, I think I'd love to hear from your perspective on just some of the things that you've learned through that journey. I know it's frustrating to not be able to. I mean, you're obviously a helper. (laughs) That's clearly you're helping kids, not you're helping the climate. But, I mean, even looking back and reflecting on that experience, what would you tell people today about this? And It seems like it's kind of popping back up in the radar, but it never quite takes hold
1: sure well i mean there's two pieces to it the work with youth was really um again runaway homeless teens. so a lot of really sad Mm -hmm. situations lack of resources unstable families often addiction mental health Mm -hmm. Um, i was in madison wisconsin which was a kind of welcoming place for youth from milwaukee and chicago in particular because the young population uh, um, an understanding um kind of social safety net for um, for homeless people. And so Mm -hmm. it really attracted these youth who would flee from the bigger cities to come to Madison and they often needed help. And so this this program was designed to um, great little nonprofit in in, in Madison designed to provide crisis intervention services. And ultimately, you know, it's it's about people who need help, people who are Mm -hmm. finding themselves in a tough spot and just really need help organization provided a lot of that help but it was temporary and it was transient and so mm-hmm. at the time to me law was a place to go really how do we help uh, keep these youth out of um, prison because plainly you know they would commit crimes petty crimes needing food needing a place to right. stay um but they weren't criminals they weren't criminals right. at heart
0: right oh my gosh well i, I mean kudos to you and I mean, what a part of the foundation? to kind of, Well, first of all, it just tells a lot about you as a character. Uh, so it's, it's amazing. I'm sure you're still connected in some way, shape, or form. But but let's let's go ahead and transition. I mean, okay, so pretty. There's a savior thing going on here. <laughs> all right. So how do you, how do you make how did you make the segue into sustainability, or kind of kind of walk through that transition?
1: Sure. So I you know, appreciate what you say. And it is important to me to believe in what I'm doing, to feel like I'm helping to, to helping to solve a problem that's out there. I really am motivated that I, by that. I have my grandparents, my parents to thank for that. And um, as I was practicing law and feeling like maybe I wasn't having that kind of impact that I wanted, it wasn't, wasn't really fulfilling in that way. I started to think about the different things that I really did care about and one of those was the environment and climate change and recognizing that to be one of the true challenges of our of our lifetime and so I began on the side of my law practice to get involved in organizations that were really interesting to me. So I ended up serving on the board of something called the Rebuilding Exchange here in Chicago and it's a really great uh, organization it actually brought me there cuz of my criminal defense work because they in addition to doing their environmental work, were um, focused on job training for ex-offenders and really getting them back into positive work. And what the Rebuilding Exchange did was housing deconstruction and building deconstruction. So instead of demolishing buildings and throwing everything into landfills, they were about diverting waste from landfills by taking apart buildings and creating a market for the reuse Of everything from lumber and bricks to sinks and kitchens and hardwood flooring Mm -hmm. and they were training ex-offenders to work in the showroom where they sold these goods and to help do the deconstruction work itself Mm -hmm. served on the board of that organization they were doing some great work and while i was there i met a person named tim brown who also served on the board of directors and uh, Tim was um, in the environmental space from the beginning Had farmed uh, uh, a nonprofit of his own called the Delta Institute and had recently gone off um, through a company called Wabashko to focus on um, climate change and doing really interesting environmental projects. Really like Tim, we got to talking. I was explaining some of the things I was interested in and my struggle and how could he help me find some interesting work in the environmental space. And right about that time, he said, you know, I actually think there's an opportunity here around some of the work we're doing, carbon offset credits, California cap and trade program. What do you think about Mm -hmm. coming and working with me? And that's what led uh, Tim and I to start to work together and ultimately to form Tradewater.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, What a great story. So now you and Tim co-founded Tradewater as it stands today. And Tradewater has been around for a little history of the company.
1: Yeah. So um, Tradewater was formed in um, 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're just over five years old, had our five-year anniversary earlier this year. Um, And Thank you. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a a big milestone. It's great. It is. Uh, Tim had formed this company called Wabashko in around 2008. um, And they were doing a variety of really interesting environmental projects focused on whether the private sector um, and a for-profit entity could do a I don't want to say a better job, but a, have greater impact with money than uh, he had had in the non for profit space. Mm-hmm. And so Wabashka was formed to do that. They did some work um, with wind farms and around coal mine methane, and were really focused on the Chicago Climate Exchange at the time, which was a hoped for catalyst for uh, carbon projects. It didn't mm-hmm. actually materialize. We can get into the whole Obama administration and everything, but doing some real interesting things when they stumbled upon the California cap and trade market and learned about what that program did and the projects it allowed for, which included the destruction of old refrigerants and uh, started to develop a small project around that work and said, you know what? I think there's really a there there. This could form the anchor for a new business venture. Mm -hmm. And that's where I came in.
0: Got it. let me roll the clock back a little bit, because if you formed up in 2016, so you're a five-year-old company, Trade Waters, obviously, and we'll get into even more details of it, but, you know, in the realm of high-quality carbon offsets, specifically refrigerants. But let's just walk back a little bit. So the two of you are beginning to talk about this. I'm doing my math right here. Somewhere in the sort of 2013, 2014 range, right? And at that time, this whole kind of you know, environmentalism has had sort of waves of enthusiasm right? Um, And we were at a point at that period, if I remember correctly, where sustainability and all that stuff was kind of out there. Some people started moving in the realm of, you know, identifying carbon as one of the key elements that we wanted to get under control. And there was a lot of uh, call it, development at the time, much of which, like you're saying, in the exchange in Chicago, ended up kind of flaming out, right? And then you guys... I think, timed fairly well, where trade water was sort of started at the tail end of that flame out, and you're now rising up as it's becoming back top of mind, smarter, better, faster than the first go around. So my question is, kind of going preceding the formation of trade water, in your estimation and memory, what was going on at the time around environmentalism, and why didn't it work then? I and mean, then kind of contrast that to where we are now.
1: Sure. And I, I, I have to say, I don't know that I'm the best person to answer of the when, because this is sort of a second uh, second phase of my career. Um, so yeah, sure. I happen to, to get in on, on this upswing that, that you're mm-hmm. talking about. Um, from you know, what I know, you had you know, different um, projects like the uh, European Union's emission trading mm-hmm. scheme that was set up, mm-hmm. which uh, again, put a, a cap and trade program in place, allowed for some offset credits. Um, That had been around for a bit. My understanding is that that was um, a really great attempt that didn't work because the supply and demand was mismatched. And you end up with lots of offset credits, the improper pricing of carbon. And so it really didn't lead to um, the robust program to drive down emissions that people had hoped for. Mm -hmm. Um, I know with the Chicago Climate Exchange, this was an effort to get in front of this with the hope that there might be a national either carbon tax or cap and trade program that was something the obama administration was interested in doing um so these efforts are going on to try and lay the foundation for that um choices had to be made on the political side as i understand it Uh, healthcare was chosen as the path to move ahead also an important topic Um, and that the, the fight against climate change was set aside um in favor of the political uh will that was needed to to get healthcare accomplished Mm -hmm. What I can say is that part of, uh, at least from the trade water story perspective, that um, was key was the work that California did. So instead Mm -hmm. of looking at a national regime or even an international regime, California and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, of all people, um, enacted their Global Warming Solutions Act in, I think, 2006. And that created um, a localized or regional program to focus on the impact of climate change in California and what California was going to do as the sixth largest economy in the world to drive down their emissions because Mm -hmm. they were feeling the effects, we see it now in terms of uh, coastal erosion and and fires, of course, Um, they were on to get ahead of this. And they really put um, us and a lot of other people on a course to to doing this right and learning Mm -hmm. from the EU system, how do you price this? How do you set up allowances and offset credits in a way that really makes this work and actually drives down emissions and creates economic opportunity. And we were born out of that uh, piece of legislation.
0: Makes sense. I mean, that's. I mean, um, for someone who claims they don't know what's going on, it's a pretty good answer. Uh, <laughs> you know, good insights in there. Um, now, let me kind of bring it forward a little bit. So you started Trade Water, you know, kind of in a, in a very, I mean, as it turns out, well-timed. You know period you're kind of riding an upswing however trade water is a little bit different too right it's not just in the world of carbon i mean i'll let you go into it but it's obviously refrigerant so it's related but it's not the same so maybe walk through did you guys start with the idea of focusing on refrigerant did you morph kind of you know how did how did it evolve over these last five years for you guys
1: yeah so again truly like straight out of um, the kind of narrative that was expected and hoped for when California passed its program. So they created their legislation to mm-hmm. cap emissions and continue to reduce emissions over time and to make some of the largest emitters of greenhouse gases pay for all of their emissions. That's what that mm-hmm. cap and trade program is about. As part of it, and for a variety of reasons we can get into, they also created an offset program that was built into that cap-and-trade program, and they identified a few specific offset projects that people could do and then sell the resulting credits into the California market. One of those was the collection and destruction of ozone-depleting substances. These are old refrigerants that also Mm -hmm. deplete the ozone layer, but happen to be some of the most potent greenhouse gases, the nastiest gases that we have ever created tens of thousands times more potent than carbon dioxide so california said among a few other protocols if you collect and destroy these old cfc refrigerants um and again i know i'm throwing a bunch of acronyms out there we right, can right. we can unpack that but if you can find these and you can collect them you are creating an environmental benefit because right now no one is collecting them and having them destroyed they are leaking into the atmosphere So there is an environmental benefit for anyone who does this. And if you do it according to the California rules, we will allow these emitting uh, entities to buy those credits and use it as part of their compliance obligation, because that work is this important.
0: Absolutely. And let me let me let me piggyback on that with a question, because. And, and, and TFCs, we can get into all that, you know, at the end of the day, refrigerant, right? So I think, you know, if people were to kind of take the simplistic view here is there's a lot of refrigerant in old, you know, air conditioning systems, cars, building HVAC systems. Uh, I mean, we can go down the list and, and you've got all these old gases that are sitting around to the tune of like, you know, I think tens of billions of cubic meters or whatever the number is. I mean, there's a, there's a number I sure. think you guys publish as to what's out there. Yeah. And the target on this specifically has been to identify where those are and literally get to them and destroy them before they're actually admitted into into the air and then deplete the ozone. So it's a very, very surgical, very practical, very real. And my question here is, in contrast, and again, believe in the world of carbon, but it's a little bit more abstract, whereas refrigerant is very tangible. It's like, I'm going to go find refrigerant. I'm going to destroy it. It does this. Carbon ends up being a little bit more complicated, not that it's wrong, but there's a lot of steps that are still kind of forming right now. How do we do carbon math and carbon accounting? So where I'm headed is, did you guys intentionally pick out refrigerant because it was so kind of practically real? And then as you've now developed and are starting to sell the refrigerant offsets, are you thinking about complementary things to target in the spectrum of sustainability because there's other things besides refrigerant that aren't just carbon that you could also target because I would I would the, the inherent in the question is if you develop a platform to be able to go trade and offset very specific things do you have anything kind of in the hopper as it were as you're looking beyond refrigerant or are you just so focused on refrigerant stuff
1: yeah so um, we are focused on refrigerant first and foremost Part of the allure and part of the, um, I think, great things about the credits we create, this work is incredibly tangible. And so we can talk about that. I mean, you literally put your hands on a cylinder of refrigerant It's a 30-pound cylinder, steel, think like a propane tank for a backyard grill, looks that way. We literally travel the world at this point, finding those hidden in garages and basements and auto shops and things. We transport them and we safely destroy them. There is nothing more tangible than having a car full of greenhouse gases (laughs) that you know are going to get bulked together and destroyed. And as you pointed out, um, it is a huge problem. Project Drawdown said one of the top things we can do to prevent catastrophic climate change. MIT looking at 9 billion tons of CO2 equivalent just from these old CFC refrigerants alone.
0: Is is that a global number? That's a
1: global number. Global number for just CFCs. So you said refrigerants, and that's true. That's the easiest way to think about it. But there's different classes, categories of, of refrigerants. These are the oldest of the refrigerants. We're now three generations later. 9 billion tons just from these old ones, let alone all the newer ones. Um, in terms of other project types, though, where we have found ourselves um, focused is on refrigerants first, but also on non-CO2 gases. Okay. So the recent IPCC report, um, which you know, a lot of people uh, over the summer read this kind of um, uh, group of scientists, right, all mm-hmm. over the world scientists, not creating their own research, but looking at all the research, pulling it together to say how are we doing in this fight against climate change said not so good. Um, Mm -hmm. And really we need to be out there. And one of the things that they focused on are these non CO2 gases. So not carbon dioxide, but other things like refrigerant, methane Mm -hmm. is another big one. These are not carbon dioxide, but they're potent greenhouse gases and they are tend to be short lived climate pollutants. So they're out in the atmosphere for just an intense few years But that raises the temperature in these next few years even more than carbon dioxide, which has a longer period of time in the atmosphere. And they said, if we really want to avoid that tipping point where climate change becomes almost runaway, we have got to get over these non-CO2 gases. We have to solve those problems right now before they're released to give us some more time to fight our overall carbon dioxide emissions. So Tradewater as a company is interested in other projects around methane, abandoned coal mines, abandoned oil and gas wells, things uh, we can sorry, do. Sorry,
0: let me double check on that. Sorry to jump in on that one. You said it, yeah. it, 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 gas is I get, right? We're at methane and then you went to coal mines and then uh, uh, old oil rigs. What, what is it about those that you're targeting
1: So those are sources of methane. So people focus a lot on methane that comes from livestock, cattle. That's a big issue, um, something that that people are working on. Um, But uh, coal, other fossil fuels, um, methane uh, is an off gas as they're released. And one of the things that we've learned, we did actually a project early on for the California market with an abandoned coal mine in Western Kentucky, that a lot of these fossil fuel products not only are bad for the environment because they're you know, taking apart the earth and then they're creating fossil fuels that are burned that lead to um, these mm-hmm. emissions. But you are not um, obligated or there's very limited or lacked enforcement of the cleanup at the end of the day. So mm-hmm. an abandoned coal mine is a coal mine that people mine forever, took out the coal and then stopped for a whole mm-hmm. variety of reasons. There's holes in the ground that are left behind. And the excess coal the remnant coal that remains because there's pillars of coals and things in the ground continues to leak methane so you can literally walk through a field in western kentucky and find a pipe sticking out that was um maybe a vent um for the mine and you can put a little sniffer there and there's methane that's pouring out and there's no obligation Mm -hmm. to close those up and that along with oil and gas wells same kind of thing you're abandon them you're done producing oil from them you move on your company goes bankrupt whatever happens the state takes them over and they're sitting there they continue to leak methane it's a big problem and these are some of these non-co2 gases that we would really like to get after to collect and to either cap them and prevent them Mm -hmm. from releasing or burn them and destroy them
0: coming onto the ground yeah makes sense i mean that's a great and it sounds like that also it 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 follows logically in what you guys have identified where you know again it's not the carbon's not important it is but there are all these other trace gases that are even more insidious that you guys are also going after and so right after refrigerant and you get into methane i'm sure there's a couple more kind of in the in the roadmap if you will but you built a you built something that allows you it doesn't matter what the element is you know you've got a way in which to you know, create an offset for it. So let's 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 talk a little bit about that. Let's talk a little bit about trade water and the five year journey. Because five years, and, and, and I mean that quite seriously, just even get to year one is a big deal, much less five years, right? Um, and you're at a very auspicious time. So let's reflect on that just for a little bit. I mean, what's what's trade water kind of come through? I mean, I, we joke sometimes as a, as also, and we were founded in '98, uh, uh, a little bit after you. But, you know, like the show Silicon Valley comes to mind or, you know, people seeing some of these things about startups. But talk a little bit about the five year journey of Tradewater. like what's been going on, the ups and the downs.
1: Um, sure. Well, um, we started, uh, as I, I think I mentioned, we started there was about six of us when I um, joined forces. with Tim, we're now about 45 people wow. we're based in Chicago um, and have a headquarters in. Uh, in downtown Chicago, just outside downtown Chicago, we also have a warehouse in Elk Grove Village, which is out behind O'Hare Airport, mm-hmm. um, where we aggregate um, and handle all the refrigerants that we collect in the United States. Mm-hmm. And we have an international team that's based in San Jose, Costa Rica, um, and they are responsible for identifying and helping us collect and destroy refrigerant gases around the world. So as a company in that journey over um, five years, including some of the work that was done before trade water reform as part of the Mm -hmm. Wabashco entity, we've done over 5.1 million tons of carbon offset credits as a company. Um, We've done that um, by collecting refrigerant from 49 different states, Mm -hmm. three different countries, and from Um, over 21,000 individuals. Oh, my God. Um, and so it's really a painstaking um, and interesting we call it small scale aggregation. Um, but we are we are literally boots on the ground, 30 pounds cylinders one at a time, thousands and thousands of people all over the US and all over the world. That's what we're going after and collecting and our view is that this small um, each of these small cylinders, right that many people feel like what a pain in the butt. why would I waste yeah. my time? you know, driving to the middle of Nebraska to get one 30 pound cylinder. And we say, well, if you do that a bunch of times, you can have a huge impact. In fact, over 5 million tons uh, of CO2 prevented that kind of impact. And by oh. the way, just growing. Um, and so that's the approach we take to all of this, um, all of this work and, and hope that all of these little transactions aggregated together will have a huge impact.
0: So that's that's an interesting. Let me let me let me just double click on that for a second. So if we look at the total volume of of refrigerant that you all are targeting as a as a you know, global market or whatever you want to call it, right? TM, however you want to look at that, nine billion some odd tons or whatever that number is. But you're also saying at the same time that's that's spread across all these little propane-style, you know, uh, a couple liter or however many five liter kind of containers, right? That's a challenge then to raise awareness around. You know, I mean, you guys going out and trying to identify them, I mean, some people, to your point, might not even realize it's sitting in the garage, right? But you want to target all that. That makes it difficult. I mean, that's a challenge. Right? Like, Absolutely. How, 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 do you, how do you, I mean, some people <laughs> might not even realize they're sitting on a bunch of refrigerant. And so let me ask you a two-part question. One is, have you already targeted, I'll call them the larger uh, refrigerant consumers of the past, like enterprises? Because I'm thinking now like buildings and, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, uh, commercial real estate that might have old refrigerant, you know, going to one company that has a bunch of locations. That's 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 the simple, you know, one to many kind of thing. But then right. if you've already got that and what's left are all the individuals around the planet, then then raising awareness or how do you how do you identify that? I mean, <laughs> I mean, how does that work?
1: Sure. Uh, First, to to be clear, we do both. So the huge um, um, kind of the the bulk of the work we do, what's unique about the work we do is this small scale aggregation. And that's how we've really grown and developed. We do also do work with large uh, industrial outfits. I I don't want to say that we don't. I think what's interesting is that when we work in that space, when you're dealing with a a large, say, beverage uh, company that has an old um, uh, refrigerated system. They're taking it out and putting in a new one. Multi-million dollar capital project, a couple thousand, sometimes tens of thousands of pounds of refrigerant. We've done deals like that where we've gone in and taken that refrigerant and made sure it's destroyed. But when things like that happen, there's enough actors involved who know that these refrigerants are potent, that they need to be handled correctly, and that they either can be recycled and reused or collected and destroyed. Mm-hmm. So it's often the case that there's competition to get these refrigerants. Um, and um, and like I said, sometimes we don't end up getting them, but someone else will get them and have them destroyed. We do that work. It's super important. We actually work with a lot of large enterprise companies to help them identify the kinds of refrigerants that they have. Sure. A very cool program called the Catalytic Coalition, where we say, by the way, as you're thinking about sustainability goals, make sure you focus on refrigerants. Right. We can talk about that we also do. And we have far less competition in this small scale work that we do. Mm -hmm. So that's about individuals who may not know that it's sitting there, may not know that what is sitting there is something that's dangerous or potentially harmful uh, for the planet. That work is kind of good old fashioned sleuthing and marketing. You know, we put stuff out in in um in press we put stuff online you know we're often you know searching around on online marketplaces all this kind of stuff where we are putting out the word um we do talks on uh on supply chain next as well to let people know take a look if you have cfc or now hcfc refrigerants that are in your garage in your basement um, in your shop in your building um, let us know because we will come out we will buy that refrigerant from you and we will make sure that it's safely destroyed and never leaks into the atmosphere.
0: Right. Right. Which is awesome. So, I mean, okay, that's a great, great example. So let me, let me kind of now move a little bit forward in that there's also something a little bit different about today in my estimation around the drive towards sustainability, right? And again, I'm contrasting to where it was maybe 10 years ago. There's something more, I don't know what it is. And and I'll get to the question here, but You know, it feels as if there's more energy, there's more, you know, I guess pun intended there, but there's more drive, there's more focus, there's more, like, for some reason, it just is more real today. The talk around, it's no longer just talk, like things are happening, like you guys, right? There's clear examples of real sustainability impacts why do you think that is today? What's different today than, you know, 10 years ago or even 20 years ago or shit 40 years ago, you know, when you were dealing with all sorts of different views on this? I mean, something's different today.
1: Yeah, I mean, a few things come to my mind. Um, this is a little more anecdotal than otherwise, but one is people starting to feel the impacts of climate change. I mean, you look in the headlines, floods, hurricanes. Fires, all of these things, um, drought. Um, this is real. It's no longer a, you know, kind of a theoretical threat, a decades off in the future threat, a threat that affects someone there, but not me. Um, people like it's all over the news. The impacts mm-hmm. of climate change and people are feeling it. They are losing jobs, they're losing homes, they're losing food. Um, and so I think that's making it um, more tangible. Um, I also think that that combined with maybe a newer generation that was raised on things, you know, recycling and composting and thinking about the planet, not all of those are about climate change, but there's an awareness. And what we're seeing is that people are demanding that those responsible for this take action. So whether that, you know, leads enough of a political momentum to push the current Congress and the Biden administration to actually get off their butts and do something about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not quite sure, but it certainly is causing corporations and others mm-hmm. who are out there to have to deal with a consumer base that say, mm-hmm. don't sell me a product that is you know made in a harmful way. Tell me what you are doing company to make sure that your business practices are not part of the problem, but are actually part of the solution. And mm-hmm. I think that, that push from consumers and frankly some shareholders as well who are starting to realize, you know what, if I have money to invest, I want to invest in companies that are thinking smarter, who are you know, engaged in sustainable and renewable energy. I'm going to divest from fossil fuels. All of those forces and awareness are really driving companies uh, to think about what are we doing? What is our footprint and impact on the world? And how can we do things that are better for the planet, not worse?
0: Well, and, and that kind of leaves me with a bit of a baiting question because you went into right where I was hoping to go, which is, <laughs> which is, I, I, I'm actually, I'm now leading, I'm leading the witness, as it were, back from your former life here a little bit. That's right. right. Uh, Should um, I what? be
1: objecting? Should I be objecting or no?
0: <laughs> you tell me, man, that's, that's, your, that's your thing. But so so now, though, it seems like the economics are starting to come to the forefront. And just like you described, you know, everything, not we want everyone to be altruistic, honestly, though, practical world, right? It it usually comes down to the pocketbook, you know, how are you affecting my shelter, my food, my family or whatever, right? And what seems to be is that now, as you just described it sustainability has now actually become more enmeshed with the economics of sustainability, right? It's no longer just a nice to have, it's actually interwoven into like it may be economically more beneficial to use renewable energies, right? I mean, it's finally getting to that point, like the economics are actually coming out in a way that it makes sense. Furthermore, and this is where my question goes is now you're also seeing purchasing decisions where historically they haven't been made with sustainability being kind of the, I'll call it the the, 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 um, the, the tipping point for people, like I've, I've isolated a couple of things I want to get, they all two, three are the same, and oh, but one of these three is more sustainable than the other, I'm going to purchase that. We're seeing that now, both in consumers and a little bit, but starting to in the enterprises. So how are you now witnessing or watching or observing that change in procurement behavior where sustainability is way more top of mind now. I mean, we're still kind of in the early stages, but I mean, we're seeing it like like procurement professionals for the first time are actually asking for sustainability scorecards. That hasn't happened before. I mean, that's right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right that that is the shift that we're seeing. That is the important um, um, change. And um, so the cost is coming down. That helps. But people want to know and they want to know in part because they see the disruption that can happen mm-hmm. from climate change. They want to know that you're building a business in a way that isn't going to be disrupted or isn't going to, you know, isn't going to cause problems or or be um, maybe longer term thinking. Right. How do you plan mm-hmm. for the future and understand that some of the investments we make now will pay dividends later later? um where we see it and where it's it's particularly important you talk about this consumer um, mm-hmm. choice right and, mm-hmm. and and the buying power is really with our offset credits so we've mm-hmm. talked about the California program and one of the great things for us is because California has this program that puts in place a price on carbon emissions mm-hmm. Our offsets have an automatic market. If we collect these CFC refrigerants um, in the United States, we destroy them. We create these great carbon credits that measure the environmental impact that we've created. There are entities that are basically forced by regulation to buy those credits. And so that creates the economic engine that allows us to then make our money back from buying and moving and destroying these refrigerants and then invest in buying some new refrigerants It's a rule in California that the refrigerants that you collect and destroy have to be in the United States. So what we learned as a company is that this work we're doing in the US is important. There's a lot of this refrigerant out there, so we should be looking beyond the US. The Mm -hmm. environmental benefit of the work we do, if it's in Ghana or the Dominican Republic or Honduras, is just the same as if we do it in Nebraska or Illinois. So that's why we created our international team and we started to do international projects. But the carbon offset credits that we generate from this international work cannot be sold into California, not because they're any different or worse, but just because of the rules. So we have now started to work with companies like Reckless and others to say, listen, we have this environmental problem that's out in the world. We know how to solve it. We know how to quantify the benefit that comes from it. And there's this credit that results. And we need people to buy it. We need people to take these credits and retire them and say, this is important work and I want to support it. Mm -hmm. And if we do that, then we can continue to go out and buy more refrigerant and destroy more refrigerant and, and keep this cycle going. So the consumer preference and the shareholder preference for sustainable practices, for sustainable scorecards. We're looking at emissions and measuring offsets is super important to us because we're trying to build this market, to build a demand, um, to say to companies, perhaps that are in the refrigerated food space that use refrigerants, to say, you know what, as part of your work to bring your product to market, to build your product, you are creating emissions from refrigerants. So you should also, if you want to be a smart environmental steward and, and help prevent climate change. Be supporting our work as well. So measure the emissions that you're creating and support the work in equal amount. Offset that work through projects like ours. Yeah, and well, so that consumer me, demand is is just it's key to driving that decision making.
0: Totally right. I mean, like anything else, and again, the cynic in us can come out and we can always say, like, oh my god, things are great, blah blah. blah. But you know, until it affects the pocketbook, oftentimes people and companies just don't really kind of raise their eyebrows much right and and, and i'm not right. undercutting it or diminishing it it just is what it is right i mean it's just you know you got to kind of work around that so uh, uh but where i was going is and you bring up another another fascinating piece of, so refrigerant or climate change is a global problem yet you are still constrained by i'll call them provincial or regional regulations and how you handle it so can you talk to right i mean it it just like to to me it's sort of like where is the common sense here and and why isn't this just a globe like why can't you go outsource refrigerant globally deal with it at a global level it's kind of like in a way like what bitcoin is becoming in the financial world right a a non-tethered well whatever you want to call it but a non-tethered non-government backed truly international you know global currency um that that isn't controlled by anybody i mean this to me, feels like, I mean, we're really, we're a global ecosystem. The climate is a global problem. It's not isolated to Asia or Africa or North America. I mean, everybody's interwoven in this one. So question, two-part question. One is, why are the regulations provincial the way they are today? And then is there a means with which you see that you can break those barriers down? Are you working with policy groups? Are you at the UN? Or what would be the, you know, international organization that might help you kind of achieve, or you know, again, remove those barriers of of, of provincial behavior, or regulation.
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, all of it comes down to political will. Some of it right. accidents of history. Some by design or or inability to to um, you know come to agreement. So the California rules are the way they are because of political compromise. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's some issues like if you do a project in Ghana, how do California regulators know and are able to verify the work that you did? So that's some yeah. of the practical considerations. But um, ultimately, the environment doesn't care. The climate doesn't right. you know, matter if the, the refrigerants gets released in Ghana or in South Africa or you know, South America. And so oh. we are focused on the problem. We look around the world, where yeah. is there refrigerant? how do we get it destroyed? Mm -hmm. So these um, provincial rules and everything impact us in a whole bunch of ways that are Mm -hmm. challenging. One is offset markets. You have Mm -hmm. some compliance markets where people have to buy these credits where it's recognized that this work has value. Those have geographic limits to it. But the refrigerant itself is considered hazardous waste um, in many, Mm -hmm. many countries. And um, not hazardous because it is, um, you know, dangerous to like, you know, a human being in the immediate direct sense, but Mm -hmm. hazardous because of its impact on the environment. As a result, if we find Mm -hmm. refrigerant in Ghana and need to move it to another country to be destroyed, we have to go through all kinds of hoops and hurdles just to move this hazardous waste. Your listeners who deal with supply chains and any kind of Mm -hmm. hazardous material are going to know this even better than us. Um, But we're all subject to the Basel Convention to move this stuff. And one of the big barriers that we face as a project developer is we can find these refrigerants in certain countries, but very few countries have the capacity to destroy this refrigerant safely. So we often have to find it in a particular country and then move it somewhere else to be safely destroyed. So we have to go through all of these um, permission processes To do it, we also have to deal with shipping. So again, there's people in you know your network here are going to understand supply chain better than I. But we have some material in Central America right now that we own, we've acquired, we've tagged, we've got it all set and ready to be destroyed in Europe. We're having trouble finding a ship (laughs) that can take it from Central America to Europe to be destroyed, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's preventing us from moving ahead and getting this project across the finish line and this refrigerant being destroyed right now. So just some of the kind of unforeseen ways that all these rules and regulations, which are designed, you know, with good intention, are actually standing in the way of some of the project development and the environmental impact that we could have.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, let me, let me so you, you also bring up one that I can't believe I've asked this yet. So just out of curiosity, what does it take to destroy refrigerant? Like, what, what is sure. that process?
1: Yeah, so the Montreal Protocol, which is an international treaty that actually phased out the production of these refrigerants mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of their impact on the ozone layer, has gone through and um, kind of declared certain technologies that are um, um, compliant and able to safely destroy refrigerant. So there's sort of a list of them, but there's two basic types. One is incineration, Okay. The other is plasma arc technology. So very high heat, concentrated um, systems where you feed the gas through. It breaks up the chemical, um, the the chemical bonds into right. inert subparts that then can be um, that can be burned and destroyed.
0: That's exactly where my head was going. I was like, okay, I'm busting out my old periodic table <laughs> now in my head going, all right, what molecules am I breaking up here? Because of CFC, and I remember that's an acronym, I can't remember, it's chloro-something fluoride. Chlorofluorocarbon. Whatever. Yeah. chloro right? But that, if I look at the chemical composition of that molecule, it's, you know, the, the elements of it are, you know, probably four or five core periodic table elements. Dichloro-difluoromethane. There we go, and so then you got to break that apart. I mean, this is a molecular destruction. I mean, because yes, you know, you you literally have to change the composition of that material of that gas, as it were, yeah. to as you said, make it inert. And I I don't. I mean, again, it's not just like going and throwing it in the fireplace. Um, <laughs> you know, like there's a little bit more to it than that. And so then I'm imagining also that a facility to do something like that is pretty unique, like special purpose, right? It is. So there are
1: a lot of hazardous waste incinerators that can do this. Um, There's a few other requirements. So if you're technically, it's possible. There's a few additional layers that you would need, like, first of all, to be able to feed in gas. Not all incinerators can take gas feeds. Some of them are solid waste. You also need particular linings because the chlorine and the fluorine that make up these CFC refrigerants are really, really harmful. So as the materials coming through, the lining of these uh, incinerators can often get corroded and cause leaks if you're not careful. So that's another piece that some incinerators have, others do not. And one of the other things that's super important to us as well as project developers is a continuous emissions monitoring system. So We have to show what went in, all the refrigerant that went in, exactly the volume and exactly the type and purity and everything. And we have to show what comes out. And we have to monitor that continually. So those systems are a key part of what we do to prove that all this refrigerant went in and nothing harmful to the environment came out. And so, yeah. And so it's a great system. There's, you know, a couple dozen facilities that are currently set up to do this around the world
0: okay um, that's right. I, really just a couple dozen around the world that's made unbelievable yeah. okay.
1: yes and only a, you know handful in the in the united
0: states alone yeah so let me let me follow that on with okay so one thing that i've always in, we're in a different also in a new era i would call it the space-based era right um and space presents a whole new place of migration and opportunity but just a very simple question which is you know, even with nuclear waste, or in this case, uh, CFCs, like, I mean, have people th- literally thought outside of the box and go, okay, can I do something literally in space? Like, no, I'm not. I mean, it's, it's yeah. you know, 20 years ago, you'd laugh at me. But today, with rocket delivery systems, you know, driving down a price per rocket in the way that SpaceX and Astra and everybody else is, that's a very viable piece of the supply chain extension have has anyone even begun to think about the implications of, you know, why are, why are we spending all this? Cause I imagine what you just described has got a lot of energy because immediately my brain starts going into the total cost of, you know, uh, not just total cost, but the total like energy of the operation itself to destroy this, this, this element, if you will, this chemical composition. So that onto itself has to be analyzed to go, is this even, you know, is the energy that I'm pouring into this, you know, from renewable energies and everything. And I, I mean, I get it. I mean, CFCs are so, harmful that pretty much, you know, you can do whatever you want and it's going to be a net positive to the earth. Correct. Right. Yeah. Um, however, I guess where my question is, is, you know, since you're at the forefront of this stuff, does anybody even, do even hear people talking about the implications of space and what we're doing there and how we deal with some of the crap we have on earth here.
1: So I've not thought about that. That's a, that is a new one as a solution. Uh, it, okay. it's super interesting. Um, Probably a few logistical problems. It's a compressed gas; it takes up some volume and everything. But um, I haven't thought about it. I mean, I think this is you know all hands on deck here, right? We got to figure out these are big problems. So anything that anything that we can do, um, we should be thinking about. We should be talking about. I do want to just say on the kind of the destruction side, it's really important to point out that these gases are that much more potent than carbon dioxide, Um, Mm -hmm. CFC twelve. Freon, 10,900 times more potent than carbon dioxide. Methane is something Mm -hmm. we talk about a lot. Methane is 28 times more potent than carbon dioxide. So these refrigerants, 10,900 times, super potent. So when you buy a carbon offset credit generated by Tradewater, just to be clear, we take that benefit, right, that Mm -hmm. full global warming potential, and we subtract out what it took to move the material and what it took to destroy that material. Totally. So the offsets don't reflect that full volume but that less the energy it took and the emissions created in that project. So the net of that is still far greater um, yeah. as you point out than uh, than any emissions and it becomes super important work to do.
0: Totally, totally. Well let me let me uh, we've got a few minutes left here so I kind of want to kind of move move the ball forward a little bit, so What's, you know, as we, you guys have been at for five years, you've had some great growth. Your timing of it is, I mean, mean, I'm not sure you could have done this 10 years ago, to be honest, right? Whereas today, you're in the middle, you're at the right place at the right time, you've got the right mission, got the right, you know, kind of target in the CFCs, right? Versus maybe some other things. What do you see kind of moving forward in the next couple of years, not only for trade water, but just how we're approaching, you know, this, the, the climate and sustainability issues at hand, right? Like, I mean,
1: yeah. Um, I mean, so one of the things that I, I guess I want to say, and I uh, um, maybe this is a little um, um, <laughs> um, selfish, but this project type is really important to bring attention to. So, this, as you pointing out, you know, interest in sustainability is key. ESG goals are important. Offsetting is really important. And one of the things that we've come up against in this world is that when people talk about that and they think about that, they immediately think about trees, they think about forests, they think Mm -hmm. about, um, you know, kind of agricultural products and green projects. Those things are important. We need to be doing that. But that's the vision. The work that we're doing, by contrast, includes cylinders, Mm -hmm. (laughs) incinerators. Mm -hmm. trucks and ships. And there's often a disconnect in the minds of people when they think about environmental benefit um, and then the work that we're doing. And one thing that I just um, really hope we're able to do is to help people understand that there's more to sustainability and fighting climate change than trees. And some of these industrial gases and these industrial processes are huge sources Of emissions and the work that we do, which may not be charismatic in the visually stimulating ways that I just described, is super, super important. Project Drawdown, which looked at again, you know, the top things we can do, they said refrigerant management and, you know, responsible handling is the number one thing that we can do, in part because these gases are so potent, and also in part because as a result of climate change, more and more people are gonna need air conditioning and refrigeration. So if we don't get ahead of this problem and start to plan for it in a really smart way, we're in trouble. So for people um, who listen to this podcast and think about environmental issues, I really want them to kind of stay within this industrial sphere and say, even though this isn't about trees and I may not be able to put a tree on my corporate brochure cover, What I can put on there is impact. And if I really want to make an impact, if I want to take care of a problem that is essential in this fight, refrigerants are one of those things I should be looking at and thinking about both within my supply chain, in my facilities, as well as in my offsetting portfolio.
0: It's an awesome, awesome way to uh, kind of wrap things up. It's a great view. It's also, you know, like many things that we try to do, especially in the supply chain world, is get real simple and practical that's what this community likes, you know, they like tangible real things and you guys are doing something that's super tangible. So, I mean, super credit to you. And, you know, uh, I'll just say this, I mean, between your early career and focusing on on helping children to now sustainability, I mean, what a, what a amazing, amazing person, you know, thank you so much for for spending some time with us and kind of telling us a little bit about what's going on with you and trade water and everything else. Really awesome.
1: Great. Right. Thank you so much. I appreciate and appreciate requests uh, support and interest in putting carbon offset credits on your on your platform. I think that's amazing.
0: Absolutely. No
1: problem. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Really appreciate Thanks. it. Take care.
0: This is Richard Donaldson. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments about the episode or topics in supply chain you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at supplychainnext@request.com. And while you're at it, why not check out the Requis platform at supplychain.requist.com. Request allows you to manage the full asset lifecycle in the cloud, collaborating with your entire value network to buy, manage, and sell your assets. Find out more at www.request.com.